0: ladies and gentlemen this is dr Jana, and this is your favorite our coffee with dr yana and in this series we explore the topic of science and the paranormal today we have a fantastic guest who has a phd in parapsychology but is such a rare 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 thing and we're going to pick his brain today in so many different topics He also has a master's degree in counseling psychology, and we will be tying psychology also to our conversation. He served uh, uh, in the Royal Canadian Mounted Police for 15 years, in fact, and uh, now he's a director of the Paranormal Phenomena Research and Investigation. He was featured on the Discovery Channel, the Global Mail, the Daily News, and the Chronicle Herald. Also, the CBC Radio, many podcasts, radio stations, and um, was most uh, recently the, Coast, uh, the, the East Coast parapsychologist on Sphere Media's television series, Repossessed. Welcome, our fantastic guest, his is the Excellency. Elliot Van Dusen. Hello, Elliot. Thank,
1: thank you, Dr. Yana. Thank you. I, uh, I'm very excited to be on your show.
0: Well, Dr. Elliot, uh, I am going to ask you all sorts of questions today. And one of them, which is the first and most important one, how did you get to study parapsychology?
1: Well, I uh, the first time I started to academically study parapsychology, we had moved to Halifax, Nova Scotia here in Canada. And my mother had actually seen an article in the newspaper about a parapsychologist that was teaching parapsychology at the Nova Scotia Community College. So I looked up the courses that were being taught and uh, decided to enroll in them. And that's where I met uh, Dr. Darrell Walsh, my uh, colleague. Um, we do uh podcasts together and we teach online parapsychology courses together and um we've been friends for yeah, twenty I'd say at least twenty twenty some years for sure. And uh I really enjoyed learning about parapsychology academically. So after that I decided to continue my education. I ended up getting a diploma in parapsychology through the Stratford Career Institute and um i went on to take more courses anything i could get my hands on i did the introduction to parapsychology course from the university of edinburgh their kessler parapsychology unit uh, i've taken multiple courses uh, from the ryan education center in fact i think i was the second person to complete their certificate program uh which is something that i'm very proud of and then of course uh I earned my bachelor of arts in criminology, uh, master of arts in counseling psychology, and uh, did a doctorate in uh, parapsychology. I've uh, been investigating the paranormal for twenty six years, and um, yeah, still doing it. Uh, still doing it today, full time. I retired from the police force, like you mentioned, in uh, twenty twenty. So uh, since twenty twenty, I've been doing nothing but uh, the paranormal full time.
0: So in your childhood, would you say you had a particular experiences with the paranormal? And of course, not many children talk about it, uh, although and even parents are not acceptive of that. So how was it in your childhood? Did you have anything happen in your childhood that really stemmed uh, the interest in the par- parapsychology and paranormal?
1: Yeah, I get I get asked that quite often, and you know what? I never had an experience that got me into the paranormal, unlike most people. Um, what it was for me was watching the television show Unsolved Mysteries. Um, I always knew that I wanted to be a police officer, and I knew specifically that I wanted to do ho- homicide investigations. And what happened is, um, you know, I'd watch Unsolved Mysteries, and they would talk about cold cases, which was very interesting. But then every once in a while, they throw a ghost story in there or a UFO story, and that really caught my interest as well. And then in 1997, I discovered the TV series The X-Files, which had come out in 1993, but I hadn't started watching it. And uh, once I saw the first episode, I thought it was really cool that you had two law enforcement officers investigating the paranormal. And that's kind of what prompted me to create Paranormal Phenomena Research and Investigation because I wanted to start collecting local stories and kind of doing local investigations. And then um, it would have been in 2000, 2001 that I started taking courses academically, uh, starting with the Nova Scotia Community College. So for me, it was more, you know, Unsolved Mysteries and the X-Files that kind of drew me into this world.
0: Now from the beginning, when you just started um, this career in parapsychology, um, when did you get your education in um, psychology? Yeah, in so psychologist. So that was master's degree, right?
1: Yeah, so I did my uh, I did my master's degree um, back in two thousand. I I did uh, I did it back yeah two thousand with uh, Yorkville University. Um, and it was a counseling psychology degree. I didn't end up going into, uh, practicing, uh, counseling psychology. I think I, I don't have the, uh, restraint. I think, uh, you know, I, I've kind of known as a a straight shooter. Uh, I was, (laughs) I was when I was with the RCMP as well. Uh, so I don't think I have the qualities that would make me a good counselor, um, And that's, uh, but but it's important, though, I I do take, um, you know, all my training, even my law enforcement training, and I bring it back into parapsychology. You know, a lot of people ask me how uh, being a police officer, like if it's maybe a better paranormal investigator or a worse paranormal investigator, but I take skill sets even from that um, and apply it to parapsychology investigation. So, for example, you know, interviewing techniques we were trained to interview adults. We were trained to do special interviews with children because you can't ask them leading questions. You know, uh, we're trained to provide testimony in court expert, you know, considered experts in court. So all that, um, you know, I find is very valuable and I take those and I apply them to our investigations. And another, uh, thing that I've implemented with PPRI in our investigations is continuity of evidence. So, you know, when you go to a crime scene, you have to be very careful with the way that you handle evidence. There's chain of custody. You have to make sure you know who's been handling that evidence because it's all about continuity and not tampering with the evidence. And so with our paranormal investigations, I've kind of implemented the same rules. So we have uh, uh, one individual that is an audio engineer with our organization. He does all of our electronic voice phenomena analysis results. And what happens is on the investigation, it's collected up by the lead investigator, whoever had the tape recorder, it's given to the lead investigator, and then it's uploaded to our shared drive, which then the uh, audio engineer has access to. So we've really tried to tighten up our evidentiary control during our investigations, um, just to kind of rule out, you know, any sort of criticism that you often get in paranormal investigations.
0: Now, does uh, that evidence, uh, paranormal ed- evidence of, uh, uh, is it admitted in courts? Have you ever had those experiences?
1: No, uh, I keep a close tab on court cases with the paranormal because we always say, you know, if um, if there's ever something that goes to court that's, you know, the judge rules in favor of the paranormal, that's amazing because that's case, uh, case law or precedent, as they call it. Um, the only types of cases that I seen go to court that are successful is uh there's real estate a couple of real estate cases where people bought an alleged haunted house and um it wasn't disclosed to them and the courts have ruled in favor that uh realtors are supposed to discuss that with clients if there's been a known haunting at the house they are supposed to disclose that in some u.s states and i just talked to a realtor here in nova scotia the province that i'm in And apparently they're starting to do that here now as well, because um, especially with uh, even with just people dying at home, uh, you know, when you get sent home from the hospital, people want to know that information now. So they're starting to disclose that. So I've seen cases like that go to court. Um, Other than that, not a whole lot has been successful in court with the paranormal, especially demonic uh, possession cases. Those normally get, uh, you know, tossed tossed out.
0: It's probably going to be another 200 years, (laughs) maybe longer before they will be able to admit that in the court. um, That is sad at the same time, because for people, those are real experiences um, and you can't even dismiss them because uh, that's not only uh, one personal experience several people are witnessing the same thing, so becoming the objective reality. Um, However, nevertheless, uh, they are not still, uh, not admitted uh, in the court system. Um, So having that um, degree in psychology, did it change your approach to parapsychology and to paranormal investigations?
1: Um, I think the one thing it it did was uh, it educated me more on, uh, you know the DSM-5 and mental illnesses um for sure and uh kind of gave you you know a better understanding of like dissociative uh disorder that that gets brought up a lot in poltergeist cases for example um a lot of a lot of times poltergeist living agents or people that are believed to be causing that activity in the house often get labeled as having dissociative identity disorder. So people aren't saying that they they didn't do it. They're just saying that they weren't aware that they were doing it. Um, So I I think, you know, it certainly brought some perspective uh, to my investigations with that. We actually had a case where um, the claims were extreme there was talk about a a ghost mist that was circling in a bedroom for three days and there was talk about uh, blood that had or water that had turned to blood and just you know kind of o- outside your ordinary kind of haunting claims and um we did a very thorough investigation of it and luckily the lady had um done a medical background and so we had asked for a copy of the medical background she had told us that everything was fine uh, in her medical background she had no issues sharing it and upon reviewing it one of the first things that was flagged in there was that she was suffering from delusional disorder and that kind of matched up with our investigation because when my investigators interviewed the person that was an independent witness to the water turning to blood they said well no i didn't see water turned to blood like If that's what she said, then that's what she said. But I didn't witness that and we would slowly start to kind of, I don't want to say debunk, but we were picking apart the case, you know, scientifically. And at the end of the day, you know, with my knowledge now that she has delusional disorder and she's obviously in her mind suffering from a real haunting, you know, in, in her perception, um, what I did is I reached out to Dr. Jim Haran, who is a clinical uh, parapsychologist, which is kind of a new trend that's popping up. Uh, it's been mentioned now for at least last year. But a clinical parapsychologist is somebody that is a current licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but also has a background in parapsychology. And so they're able to help clients such as the client that we had um, and kind of help them with the mental health from a parapsychology standpoint. He actually ended up going on to publishing a paper about that investigation in a scientific journal. So it was really uh, big news for our organization. You know, we were really happy and and proud of that investigation because it ended up being published in a scientific journal. Um, But I, I definitely think that between all my skill sets and all my education, I kind of take the whole totality of it and I apply it to the type of work that I do. And I think it's important. There's so many different aspects when it comes to the paranormal. You know, uh, the actual definition of parapsychology is the scientific study of extrasensory perception, mind-matter interaction or psychokinesis and survival of consciousness beyond bodily death. And it's considered a social science. And the reason that it's considered a social science is because we're dealing with people's experiences and perceptions. You know, when we get a call, that's what we're doing. We're going, we're interviewing the people, we're listening to their experience, we're documenting their perception. And that's why parapsychology is considered a social science.
0: Now, out of all cases that you have had so far, what is the percentage of the cases uh, that were true hauntings uh, and uh, that were just something that could be explained by scientific means, natural phenomena? I, I almost
1: think there's, there's like three classifications. I think there's the ones you go into where you're confident it something paranormal and can't be explained. And for example, the one case uh, that I worked on uh, with that was a haunted house in Kentville, Nova Scotia. It was an old 110-year-old home, and the people had just moved into it, and they were having pennies materialize out of nowhere all over the house. And they had Mm -hmm. also seen uh, apparition walk down their stairs, and they had a dog pass away, and they had seen the apparition of the dog. So they had contacted my organization, And we had gone and conducted an overnight investigation. And during that first uh, visit, it was around 2 or 3 in the morning, we had a camera set up in the dining room in the kitchen. And every hour on the hour, one of my investigators would go and check, make sure the tape was still recording, that the battery was still good. Because you hear in paranormal cases, batteries often drain uh, for whatever reason. So we were checking all the equipment. It was all functioning. At this one point in time, when he went to check the tape, there was a penny that had materialized by the base of the tripod. And there was no way in or out of this place unless you passed the investigative team, because the way we were situated in the living room, we could see anyone that comes in and comes out. And you could actually hear him get up off the couch. You could hear the springs from the couch. You could hear him walking towards the camera and then you can hear him discover the penny. So at no point did somebody like go over there and sneak a penny there or drop a penny there. So that was the one thing that happened at night that we couldn't explain. So we came back for a second investigation. And during the second investigation, one of my investigators actually saw a apparition of a little girl up in the upstairs bedroom. So when you take that case and you look at that and you've tried to rule out everything scientifically about it, Um, we're kind of left with the unknown. So in my opinion, I would say that that place was haunted. And then we've had other places where we go in and we're able to solve some things, but not others. So for example, a couple of years ago, we had an Airbnb call us saying that they thought the place was haunted because they saw a female apparition in the house. They would have muddy boot prints appear in the kitchen. And uh, for whatever reason, back door the curtain would always slide to the right no matter how many times they put it back to the left so we went to uh myself and one of my other investigators two of us we spent the night there um the first strange thing that happened is uh one of the batteries in our motion detectors uh, almost caught fire basically they were a brand new battery and it rapidly got really really hot and if we hadn't have taken it out of the motion detector i actually think it would have caught fire so we thought that was kind of strange but we were able to solve the curtain mysteries because we had set up a, a camera overnight and had it focused on that curtain and what it was is every time the furnace kicked in which uh, there was a vent about two feet away from the back door Every time it kicked in, the drape would slowly move over, not enough that you'd be able to see it with your eyes, but over a period of several hours, you could see every time the furnace kicked in, the drape would slowly move over. So by the course of overnight, that drape would be on the far right side. So we were able to explain that as just being air current from from the uh, furnace kicking in. We didn't see the apparition, and we didn't have any Muddy bootprints appear in the house, so that would be a place that I'd want to go back and do a, another investigation because we're only in there for a short amount of time, and the people that live there and own the property have more exposure to the environment. So I don't discount their experience that they saw a female apparition at the place. It's just when we were there for that one night, we didn't see the female apparition. So you've kind of got that that place that's that's in between, you know, could be haunted could not be. And then, of course, there are cases where we uh, have fully um, come to a reasonable explanation for. Um, one was a, a photo. I was doing a public event at the Fortress of Lewisburg uh, with another group called Haunts from the Cape, and they wanted me to come in and talk about parapsychology and um, all this, you know, kind of kind of stuff, show them how to use the tools that we use in paranormal investigations, And while I was doing that, somebody approached me and said that they had a ghost photo. And I was thinking, okay, let's let's see what they have. Because normally Mm -hmm. when we get pictures of ghosts, uh, it's orbs and dust and things that can be explained. So I was kind of, you know, kind of, you know, fascinated, but also kind of skeptical. So when they showed me the photo, it was interesting. It was a face and and the mouth was wide open and, uh, it kind of looked very spooky. So I said, okay, I said, that's interesting. You know, I said, tell me the story behind it. So they said, uh, that they were taking pictures in their backyard and they noticed this face appear inside their house. And, um, it was really creepy. And, you know, she just kind of wanted an opinion on it. So I asked her if she had the photo tested and she said, no. So I had sent the photo off to a photograph expert and they ran it through their computer system and found that the photo wasn't tampered with at all. And they just kind of give you a very scientific, you know, explanation that the red, green, blues haven't been tampered with, the shadowing's fine, you know, photo's not uh not faked. But we noticed two things when we examined it a bit further. So we were able to zoom in on the photo, and what you could tell is the face actually only appeared on the screen because you could see the tiny little squares of the screen. And behind that, you could see what's left in the kitchen. So that tells you that the image was not actually in the kitchen; it was on the screen. And then the second thing that we noticed in one of the photos that the homeowner had sent us is that there was a pool in the background. So one of my investigators, um, Mike Shy, is very uh, he's one of my best researchers—came um, up with the theory that what if somebody had pressed their face against the screen and yelled to their mother or or whatever? So we did uh, we did a controlled experiment. So I had my wife, Sarah, um, push her face against our screen and we took photos and initially when I did it, couldn't really see anything. And I said, did you put on any makeup today? And she said, well, she said, not really. I said, okay, we'll go put some makeup on and, um, like whatever you normally put on and let's test it again. And then when she did that and we tested it, we basically had the exact same image appear. And so when I went back to the person that had given me the photo to look at and investigate, I asked her, I said, do you happen to have kids that might not necessarily come in when they're swimming, but yell through your patio door? And she said, oh yeah, they do that all the time. You know, They ask for a drink or they ask for something to eat or whatnot. And then I explained to her what we had done And um, then when she looked at her photo again, she said, Oh, yeah, she said, you know what, that's totally what it could be. And I didn't get like the vibe that she was trying to deceive us or trick us or anything like that. I honestly think she took a photo didn't realize what it was, and just wanted some questions about it. And when I gave her that answer and told her about the kind of, you know, little experiment that we did. Um, She was very happy with that. She said, you know, that she's just um, glad that it's not like a demon or a bad ghost or anything, because the photo was quite creepy. But um, yeah, upon investigation, we were kind of able to rule it out that it was most likely just skin oil, possibly some cosmetics that had appeared on the screen. Um, So yeah, I like to say that there's kind of like three classifications of files. You've got your haunted, you've got your, yeah, maybe, and then you've got your you know, no, it's it's something scientifically explainable.
0: That is so important to bring that critical thinking into this kind of investigations because some people are looking for sensation. Some people, of course, like you said, they have a medical reason to do so. And some cases have been actually confirmed uh, that uh, there is a demonic presence. So, Elliot, what other scientific methods do you use to investigate the cases?
1: Yeah, so we have a, uh, a bunch of tools and one of the things that I like to uh, get out there, I call it the fallacies of the paranormal is that there's no actual piece of equipment that can detect a ghost, you know, uh, they're marketed as ghost detectors and ghost hunting equipment and all that stuff but they're not they're actually just basically scientific tools for other other aspects so for example thermometers digital thermometers anybody can use those they were using them during covid to check your temperature when you went into a restaurant um you know uh, electro electromagnetic field radiation detectors are used by electricians to detect unshielded wires um flir or the ford infrared looking camera thermal camera was used by the police. We would use it to find missing people, uh, people that wandered off into the woods. Um, back when cannabis was illegal in Canada, we used to use it to detect grow ops because if you had a grow-up in your house, there would be a certain room that would be extremely hot on the thermal imaging. And you, you could use that without a warrant because it, it was non-invasive, non-intrusive. So we use all these different tools when we come into the home first, not to look for ghosts, but to... See if there's something in the environment that might be causing